Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, E.K. I'm Mariah Rose. Hi, how's it going? Really intense. It's been an intense period of research. It has been intense. Uh, This is going to be an interesting episode. For those of you joining us for the very first time, this is Laser Graves. It's a podcast about the 80s, and we do a lot of movie reviews, discuss movies, but... Our real joy and passion is doing deep dives on random subjects from the 80s. We don't get to do them as much as we would like, but we are making an effort to try and do more this year. And these are, I'm just going to say, these are my favorite kinds of episodes that we do. This one is weird. And the way that it came about was just, we were like, hey, we don't don't know. Well... I want to say we don't know anything, but we don't know enough. We don't know as much as we should about our topic today. And then we were just like, oh, let's scrap our other idea and just do this. And then we just like dove in. Yeah, this has been intense because we had a a whole other deep dive planned, which my brain is already going to blow up on. Yep. And then very last minute, we're like, oh, no, you know what we should do instead? (laughs) So I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but it's going to be a really fun episode. Well, it's serendipitous because, and I'm going to, let's stick a pin in our topic. And I want to tell you about a little serendipity because it it circles back. We're circling. Okay. Okay. So last or earlier this week, maybe recently, I woke up with this time from my past on my mind. And it was weird because I haven't thought about this event in a long time. And then it circled back today. So this event was when I was a little girl, like 11, I had a crush on a boy named Eric. It wasn't you. I'm so sorry. Yeah, clearly. He wasn't cool. (sighs) He was not. But I thought he might be. So I, in my own weird way, thought I should reach out to him. So... (laughs) I did what anybody would do is I donned a disguise. I dressed like an old lady. Mm-hmm, which like you me- always did. Which meant I borrowed my mom's clothes and then I curled my hair and then I put on blue eyeshadow and very red lipstick. Okay. And like where this is going. And I would go to the Graves Hotel and they had a payphone out front of their hotel. So this is a small town in Montana, really fancy old hotel. And I would go to this payphone out front. And I would use a fake voice and I'd be like, "Mm, hi. Uh, (laughs) Wait, as an 11-year-old. As an 11-year-old, I'd be like, "Mm, hi, as I dialed the number 1-800-MIRACLE. And I'd say, I really need some Miracle Whip recipes. Can you please send them to P.O. Box, whatever, Harlowton, Montana, 59036. And they'd be like, sure, we'll send you this weird Miracle Whip recipe booklet. So I would order it not to my house, but to this boy Eric's house over and over again every single day. So every day I would order this poor Eric boy. And I think I said actually Erica, just to like... (laughs) throw a wrench in it so his mom i'm sure he didn't check his mail he was a little kid his mom probably just got like 50 miracle whip recipe (laughs) booklets why did i do this i don't know but the way that i'm making this connection is that this very morning the graves hotel in harleton montana burned to the ground i haven't talked to or talked of or thought about the graves hotel in ages but just like that there it was 
And you had a similar experience that makes a lot more sense with today's topic. <laughs> no, thanks for that story. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. <laughs> so you ordered Miracle Whip recipe books to your childhood crush. If only you had been there. If only we had known each other. It could yeah. have been you. No, the, I get where you're going with this. Because the point being that you hadn't thought about that place in f- so long. Mm-hmm. You think about it and then all of a sudden it's right there. Yeah. That's true. In my case, I was speaking with a friend just the other day about the subject we're about to discuss. And we just got into this whole discussion about this person and what they were like. And I thought to myself, man, it's weird that I don't know even more. And then I could not have predicted that you would bring up this person to cover right away. So it was in the air and on my mind, which is totally bizarre timing. So let's get to it. This this episode is going to be a very interesting one. We've done these before with like Weird Al and Andy Warhol and stuff where yeah. we focus on somebody who's had a very long career, but really what what were they doing in the 1980s mm-hmm. that's pertinent to our podcast? Obviously. And this one is going to be really fun. This this episode is on Debbie Harry in the 1980s. Who do you think will be the female sex star of the early 1980s? Well, if you're a movie fan, you probably think right away of Bo Derrick. But there is also a candidate from the field of pop music. Her name is Debbie Harry, although a lot of people call her by the name of the rock group she stars in, Blondie. Okay, Debbie Harry, for those of you who don't know, I, I can't help you, but she is <laughs> world-renowned <laughs> as the lead singer of the new wave, you know, post... Well, I can't say post-punk, but following on the heels of the punk movement kind of mm-hmm. caught up in it but really more of a new wave band blondie and then she went on to have her own solo career and acting career and everything like that but when people discuss debbie harry they immediately think of the late 1970s and her time with blondie when they were dominating mm-hmm. but what what did she do in the 1980s and so what happened was we were just driving and a blondie song came on and both of us right away were like Man, we should cover Debbie Harry sometime. Mm-hmm. We were wondering how a person like her ended up in the, a place like that. Yeah, it is interesting because she's not your... She doesn't look like the type of person you would expect <laughs> to be in that scene. So there must have been more to the story. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there was a lot more, not only to get to that scene, but then what would happen after. So... If you're a Blondie fan, I hope you enjoy this. Just a little disclaimer up front is obviously she's had a very, very crazy rich life as far as experiences and ups and downs. We cannot get to all of that. Holy smokes, that would be an entire podcast. Yes. So what what we've decided to do is a brief summary of her, you know, kind of early days leading up to Mm -hmm. and then really focusing on what she was doing in the 1980s, which is a really interesting time in her career. And then we'll do a little brief after, you know, view. Get you up to date. Yeah, up to date on what she's been been on since. So like I said, if you listen to our Weird Al episode or something like that or Warhol episode, you would know this is how we kind of structure these. Yeah. So I'm sure we will leave out so much, but this has to really be kind of hitting key points. Yeah, and, we got an hour. <laughs> yeah, we only have so much time and a really big personality to, to try and discuss. So right. we got stuff we have to do. We'll That's get really to important. it. But 
sit back wherever you're at driving, you're sitting at the office trying to, you know, hope that you're not at work or maybe you have a day off or maybe you're trying to escape your life because your kids are demanding things of you, whatever your situation may be. Oh, that sounded personal. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We hope you enjoy this this little dive into the life of Debbie Harry in the 1980s. So, why don't you All right. kick it off? You, you'll you get this party rolling. Okay. I'm actually not going to start in the 80s. I didn't think so. And I'm not going to start with Debbie Harry. Where are you going? I'm going to start with a little wee little baby named Angela Trimble. Oh, man. Born in Florida. Uh-huh. I don't know what that accent was. Don't ask me about it. <laughs> 1945. Nine, so the year World War II ended. Okay. That's wild. Historian. (laughs) Well, I mean, just for perspective, that is pretty crazy. So when she was three months old, little baby Angela was adopted by a couple who owned like a gift shop in New Jersey. So little baby adopted to a Jersey family. (laughs) That was a perfect accent. Don't argue with me. So the couple renamed this baby Deborah Harry. Oh, okay. So that was her adoptive parents' last name? Yes, Harry. Okay. Yeah, and they, they're just gift shop owners in Jersey. That's it. All right. So very simple upbringing then, huh? Yeah. So when she was four, her parents told her about her adoption. And, you know, I'm going to pause here and say when we were first talking about this, I was like, she probably had a pretty rough upbringing to end up in the scene that she ended up in. And she really didn't at all. Interesting. She, Her parents told her about her adoption when she was four. So she just sort of grew up knowing she was adopted and initially didn't think she'd find her mother. But Side note, she did later find her mother, who was a pianist, a professional pianist, and they didn't really develop a relationship. And I couldn't find any information about her dad. But really, like, it wasn't traumatic for her. She said it was kind of fine. Yeah, I heard her talk a little bit about that in an interview I listened to. And it was basically like she had a shot to be able to contact her. Mm -hmm. And as she was told, it'd be like, you get one chance. And if she says no, then you just have to accept it and move on. And she did. She decided to. And she asked, would you like to to meet? Mm -hmm. And her mom said no. Yeah. And I think she just kind of, rather than dwelling on it, just said, okay, fine. Because she realized that she had a super loving family that had already been raising her. So kind of an interesting story. Yeah. Um, She did have some childhood trauma, though. Okay. Her nickname was Moon because of her face. Because the way her face is shaped? Mm-hmm. Oh, because so, of her cheeks and jaw? Apparently the moon has some beautiful cheekbones. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. What's that Mac tonight? McDonald's moon? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she was called moon as a kid, not blondie. So I, the only reason I mention that is because people sometimes think that that was like her childhood nickname. She wasn't a blondie. She says she was a redhead. But I'm going to say that the photographic evidence proves she's a brunette. Yeah, I would agree. I know. I mean, I wish I could say I was a redhead, but it's not true. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, she's a brunette. But that beautiful moon face transformed into cheekbones galore. Beautiful beyond beauty. She's stunning. This is one of those people that we're discussing where 
typically we try and not focus so much on how beautiful somebody is, but uh, it's a part of it. She's really, really beautiful. So she it is. has to be part of the conversation. We can't just pretend to <laughs> to not acknowledge that. Yeah, she does describe herself as an outdoorsy kid. Actually, she called herself a tomboy. I don't really like the term tomboy. I find it annoying. So I'm just going to say an outdoorsy kid. So she spent a lot of time outside. She was happy, had a happy childhood, graduated from high school in 63, and she went on to go to college. So again, I was shocked. I kind of thought she had been like, I don't know, in my mind, I had just sort of assumed she'd like had this gritty early yeah, childhood living on the streets like cr- climbed out of a sewer and yeah. happened to accidentally be beautiful and talented and became famous no she was successful young adult she went to college graduated from college so she's an educated adult human being yeah <laughs> and uh like a full grown adult too, because I think that's something that we'll probably get to in a bit here. But we often tend to think of famous people as hitting their stride in their early 20s. And that's not really the case in this story. She, after graduating, went on to work as a secretary. I mean, she got some good work in New York, but she worked as a secretary, a secretary for like a year for the BBC. And um, I think most infamously, she worked as a Playboy bunny. But um, I I do think we need to make clear that she wasn't a bunny in the sense of like Girls Next Door, that show where she's like (laughs) one of Hugh Hefner's girls who's like a centerfold or anything like that. She was, um, I guess, sort of her she thinks it's a friend's dad. And in a few interviews I saw, it was a little bit unclear, but I think a friend's dad was a member at the club in New York. And, like, she got a job through him working at this club as a, like, waitress. Is that how she got to New York? Because she was from Jersey originally. She just went there. I mean, she started working for the BBC and in New York okay. as a secretary. Yeah, I so that. I think that's I think that's how she got there. But uh, she worked there. So you, you'll you see, if you look it up, that iconic photo of her looking, you know, like a Playboy bunny because she was. Yeah. And from there, she got work as a go-go dancer. She worked as a waitress at Max's Kansas City, which was like a bohemian hangout. It sounds like a waitress. She was just slinging food, but it, it was like where cool people went. It's where Warhol and the Velvet Underground yeah. and Jefferson Airplane, like everybody was there. So. Right. She was mixing with a very creative crowd. So we can kind of see the shift happening where she'd been on the straight and narrow doing everything she was supposed to do and then was pulled like a magnet to this different group. Yeah, but there were early indications because I heard her talking a little bit about her childhood when she was like in her teen years Mm -hmm. and she would get in trouble because she was always dyeing her hair really bright colors. But to think of the time period that we're talking about, this would have been the 50s and Mm. 60s. Well, when she was a kid into her teen years. I think it would have been the 60s. So the fact that she was already dyeing her hair and having a sense of style They said she liked to wear black all the time. Mm -hmm. Her sister said she was always singing to everything. So I think those elements were there, but she was living a pretty mundane, like suburban life and was seeking out like-minded people because on the surface, 
she appeared to be this like really beautiful put together person but i think internally she was an artist at, at yeah. the core and was just trying to find like-minded people. Right. She was an alien in an alien world. So she was just kind of doing what she had to. And then finally she started to find her way to the crowd. And she also, like, she dreamed of being famous. She knew her her goals. That wasn't really a secret to her. But time was passing. She wasn't, a, like, a 20-year-old anymore. Yeah. She, was, she was a full-grown adult. And it was around this time that, like, when she was mixing with this creative crowd, that uh, she did begin to work with musicians. Mm-hmm. And her first, like, musical group of note was as a backup singer for a sort of a folk rock band yeah. called Wind in the Willows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the cover's really funny. They were signed with Capitol Records, Yeah, though. no, yeah, they were a real band. It's just kind of funny to think of where she would go from there. Right. And then from there, she joined a female group called the Stilettos. Yeah. Which, it's, that's such a cool name. It is a really cool cool name but this upbringing reminds me a lot of uh spinal tap spoofed it but you know dio <laughs> did it where all these people started with like folk rock band and yep. then slowly turned into something more unique and so the fact that she did that too is really funny to me totally absolutely so she transitioned to the stilettos and then when the guitarist uh chris stein joined the band that's mm-hmm. when everything changed. So they hit it off. She and Christine, they fell in love for sure. Yeah, well, he saw her performing with the stilettos and was like, whoa, <laughs> this chick is <laughs> the most beautiful. That's how he said it, like the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And I think he volunteered to play guitar for the stilettos. Oh, hmm, interesting. So, yeah, funny how that works out. Yeah, and within the year, the couple had left the group to start their own band uh, called Angel and the Snake. Yeah, which quickly dissolved and kind of members got shuffled around. And this is by 74. And that's really where Blondie gets its start. Blondie, the name comes because Chris said that that was the cat call that a lot of construction workers would say as she was walking by. They'd be like, hey, Blondie, hey, yo. Yeah, once she bleached her hair, that yeah, was like so, her gimmick. So they decided to to play off of that and create kind of a character. And they described it as more of a conceptual, like a cartoon character, Blondie. And Mm -hmm. so this was all planned ahead of time. And I I feel like the intentions were good. They really thought they had an idea. But what ended up happening is they got off to a pretty rough start. They, as it was described by people around them at the time, they had all the right elements. They just didn't know how to pull them together. And when they first started in 74, their shows were notorious for being like horrible live. And so they somehow found their way caught up in this scene that was emerging, this really blossoming punk scene in New York City, which would go on to become like one of the most famous moments is CBGBs and all the bands that were involved, you would have television and Patti Smith and the Ramones and the Talking Heads. So... Blondie is going to find themselves right in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about this scene, and this is not, you know, a unique observation, is they all had their own unique look and sound. It's not like they were just all the exact same band. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes when a scene emerges, like grunge or something, it's just, it's kind of like the same sound with different clothes on or the same clothes. Same clothes. These guys, they were all different. So Blondie did have a spot. I don't know, from what I've heard, they weren't really accepted right away by those around them mm-hmm. in New York. It was kind of like they they weren't sure about them. Yeah. And it's because they were off to such a rough start. Uh, Debbie was really 
awkward on stage. They just didn't have good stage presence. They weren't put together. She actually said about that that they like intentionally gathered like these huge personalities and like for each member of the band they looked for a big presence and that it was a little um intense we'll just say there for good or for bad yeah well it's interesting too because at this time this is another thing that i think is important to note is sometimes when we find out about these really eccentric artists we find out that they were like trust fund kids or uh-huh. you know their all their bills were being paid and that is not the case with with Debbie and Chris so they were dating of course they were already an item mm-hmm. and pretty much locked at the hip at this point they were struggling big time chris said he was on welfare yeah. all through this time until they even you know their first album really came out they were living in this absolute dump of a building complex so they were struggling to get by and they were just trying to make this band work and it was in this building complex that they met another fellow artist who was a, f- a fashion designer, a really avant-garde artist. His name was Stephen Sprouse, who became, you know, part of the New York scene. Mm-hmm. And they hit it off, and he helped form the look of Debbie Harry's like stage her presence. Fashion. So he was the one designing her clothing and telling her what oh, to man. wear. And he said he loved it because she was so open-minded. And he would say, "Oh no, don't wear that. You got to try this." And she'd say, "Okay." So he saw it as like a blank Fun. canvas. So he had an outlet to be able to try out all these looks. And she had somebody who was able to craft a more kind of eccentric style. Uh-huh. That coupled with them going in and recording and rehearsing constantly, by the time they came back, by 76 really, Blondie was a totally different band. And it was described as like, it's all the same members, but it's not the same band. Yeah. It's, they really had found their sound, their look, their image, and now they were really a force. And it was 76 that they released their first official album, self-titled Blondie. And it kind of got off to a lukewarm start. And then by their second album, now they're starting to really make waves. Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to mention about this time period, 76, is mm-hmm. Chris Stein was also a photographer. And he took tons of photos. And one of the smart moves was he recognized that his girlfriend was like an uber babe. Mm-hmm. So he was taking all these awesome shots of her and just sending them unsolicited to rock magazines. Totally. And they would get them for free. So they wouldn't have to pay for the, the uh-huh. licensing or the rights. And they'd be like, what is this? So they started publishing them and they were getting a name for themselves. So he was like kind of playing that angle smart. pretty easily. And that's one thing that we should maybe pause before we get into the rest of this is discussing how... Blondie, although they were part of this scene at CBGB's, they did not look the same part as the other bands around them. No. Uh, Debbie especially really stood out because she was this quickly becoming kind of a fashion icon of you her You can't her take style. your eyes off her. Yeah, she's got a presence about her where as, uh, you know, Tina from The Talking Heads, I listened to an interview with her and she was saying at that time everybody was like hardcore feminist and the last thing Uh you wanted to be doing was over sexualizing yourself on stage if you were a female artist so uh, i think she got some some blowback pretty hard from that at first that's funny because i i saw an interview with her where she was saying uh that when she was performing she kept taking off her clothes because she wanted to be fully there and fully present and so she was always like stripping at the shows yeah you see the photos and you know it's definitely not the ramones (laughs) no and i could see where feminists might not especially 70s feminists 
might have had a different opinion about that. I think contemporary feminists would be like, she should be able to do whatever she wants with her body. But I think 70s feminists would say she's being, she's objectifying herself. Yeah. And, but Tina said that was the easy conclusion until you saw them perform and you realize like she was in full control of her image, her style, and she had the Mm -hmm. talent to back it up. So that, that conversation kind of went away pretty quick when they earned their right to be there. And then things really took off after that. A couple more things of note with Blondie before we really get into the 80s is in 1977, they got invited to to open for, imagine this, the North American tour with Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Like, of all the shows. Good grief. <laughs> Could you imagine no. seeing that in 1977? They opened for television, too. So they were really starting to make a name mm-hmm. for themselves. And then their huge break was 1978 with their landmark album, Parallel Lines, which everybody would know, blew up because it produced all these major singles like uh, One Way or Another, Hanging on the Telephone, and then Heart of Glass. Heart of Glass went to number one. This album went on to sell 20 million copies. And what's interesting is they had this lukewarm reception in New York, but when they went to L.A., people loved them, and even more so in the U.K. Mm. In England, that like Blondie was megastars. They so still do better. They still are, yeah. And we'll talk about that when we get to the 90s. Yeah. But so they found their audience quickly. And by 78, they are, they're there. They are at the top right now. You know, that was, um, Parallel Lines was the number one selling album that year in the UK. So they went quickly to the top. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting about this, and everybody found interesting, is they were what were they i think that's what everybody was struggling yeah, to where define. did they fit where did they fit when you looked at talking heads or the ramones you knew they were punk band they were kind of an art rock band mm-hmm. but you know patty smith they all were pretty easy to define even though they were their own weird unique artists whereas blondie always has had like one foot in both worlds they were navigating the pop world just as well as they were navigating kind of the punk and underground scene and somehow managing to kind of hold their own on each side. Right. So they were really fascinating to a lot of people at this time. Right. And I know we haven't gotten there yet, but rap? What? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there quickly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is she doing? It's crazy. So we're kind of wrapping up the 70s Blondie era, you know, Blondie era of, of the very top with yeah. their number one and they're, they're doing their thing and they're just going to keep rolling into. But this is where we get to... The 1980s, which will briefly have Blondie, and then they will go out of the picture pretty quickly. Yeah. And then there's Debbie Harry kind of left to say, well, who who am I now? Yeah. And what am I going to do with, with my career at this point? Right. I saw footage of them at like the height of their fame and their fans, and it was bonks. It was so crazy. Yeah. I listened to this interview with Debbie Harry, and it was funny. She said when they went to LA, or just to California in general, they played... And the crowd there at the time, this would have been 76. And the crowd was filled with people with like bell bottoms and white pants and stuff kind of coming Mm -hmm. out of that disco scene. And they arrived in their whole look. Mm -hmm. And she said they played the same venue a week later and everybody was dressed like the band. Like they had changed. She said she saw it happen that fast. Weird. Also, we should, you mentioned the year. We should mention she's almost 30 at this point. (laughs) This is... This is when she, like, becomes famous as, as 
almost a third decade lady. Yeah, this is late in a career for somebody like this. Yeah, usually we see, especially with female singers, they get, you know, from when they're legal to like maybe 25. Yeah. And they're done. Yeah, That's once it. Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't want him, <laughs> the world doesn't want him. He wasn't there as the uh, as our touchstone, so I guess she slipped under the radar. Yeah. But let's get into 1980, because Blondie kicks it off right away. It okay. Was huge. Uh, Auto American is released. We're, you know, we're skipping over albums and stuff like that. We just can't do everyone. But that had The Tide is High, but it also had Rapture, which you just discussed. Mm-hmm. This is very, very early on to be yeah. mixing pop music and rock music with rap. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they were really leading the way. As charming as her rap is, and I listened to an interview where she said she basically got one take and they didn't care. They were like, yeah, yeah, good enough. And then just kept going. It's lovely. But I don't think they could have been prepared for how influential that would have been. Right. And exposing a, a whole new world to that whole scene of... Mm-hmm of rap and graffiti and dance and everything. Like this was where Blondie on the surface looked to be a pop band, but they were definitely part of the underground scene. Basquiat's in that video, right? Yeah, the, yeah I believe so. Video. So it was really a fascinating time in 1980 for them. And the same exact year, she starts to become really good friends with Andy Warhol mm-hmm. because he loves the band. And he's like, he's like, hey, why don't you guys start coming hanging out and Chris and her would go hang out with Warhol a lot. He said they would, he would just call up to go out to lunch or Mm -hmm. hang out and that he was always super cool to be around. He was a great listener and they just loved being around him. But he started to see the potential of her Mm -hmm. as a subject. And this is in 1980 when he took those really famous Polaroid uh, portraits of her. I think there were maybe two screen prints made and she said she still has one of them. And I think she has... Possibly one of the Polaroids still, too. Jeez. But those became iconic. And that's that's what's going to start Debbie Harry off in the 1980s on the right foot, is that she's already literally the face of Warhol's you know, scene. So mm-hmm. not bad company to be in. No, not at all. She also became involved with his TV show, the Andy Warhol TV. Mm-hmm. She was doing the voices and stuff like that. And then by 81... This is where things for Blondie start to exit, is that all the touring, all the differences in direction where the band should be going, mm-hmm. as well as drug use is really starting to become a problem. Her and Chris both are using cocaine and heroin and stuff. Not crazy like some other artists, but they're definitely, they have drug problems. So all of this kind of became the perfect storm for Blondie to be, they needed a break. We'll say that. They also had terrible management. They were terrible with money in general. Well, their management took all their money. I saw an interview with them and they're like, we sold something like 20 million albums and we have nothing to show for it. Yeah, that's because the IRS came after them because no taxes were being paid. So they lost their house. They lost everything and were basically broke. Yeah. After being like number one on the charts. So yeah, uh, pretty tough. I think all of that just kind of was a powder keg. And they didn't officially break up, but in 81, they they took a break. And when they took a break, this is where Debbie Harry saw an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know what? I'm going to do a solo album. So Chris helps her out, of course, because they're still a couple. Mm -hmm. And in 1981, 
she shifts gears and puts out her very first solo album. Hey, Debbie Harry, the rock world's best-known pin-up and the lead singer of New York's massively popular rock band Blondie, released her first solo album away from the group. Musically, it marks a change of direction because she's now working with the city's most successful disco group, Chic. But the new album, Coo Coo, has proved most controversial, mainly because of its cover showing Debbie with needles sticking through her head. Indeed, posters advertising the album have been widely banned from public display. Now, the cover is a painting based on the work of the Swiss artist 8H.R. Diger, who's best known for his work on the science fiction film Alien. At his home in Zurich, he's been working with Debbie Harry on equally bizarre films illustrating songs from the album. And it's from there that Robin Denslow now reports. It got kind of lukewarm reaction, mm -hmm. didn't really do too well. But here's something that we do have to come back to is she at this time is kind of a legit sex symbol. Like mm -hmm. she's a rock star and she is like the face right now. And what is interesting to me is when this album came out, she is 36 years old. Mm -hmm. And I think people forget that. And I, that's what's fascinating to me is that this is at a time when somebody at that age should not be receiving this kind of status and attention. Right. And I just think that that's interesting. That's an interesting part of her story. Yeah. And I think now we go, what's 36? Who cares? Um, I don't know if it's because of our age or because the culture has changed. And if it's, I, th I think it's largely because of women like her who are like, I don't actually have to just be a, a mom with like weird hair and frumpy clothes. I'm just going to continue to be me and do my thing and you can be here or not. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting to me that she is now a contemporary of people like, you know, will soon be a contemporary of people like Madonna and stuff who are significantly younger than her. So it's just interesting how she's navigating her career well, you know, Madonna would be nothing without her. Yeah, she well, paved the way. Absolutely, so many artists yeah. like just dipped from that well. But I love this. This is, I think, what fascinates me about Debbie Harry in the '80s is, by all thing, all all accounts should be at this stage in her career at that age, she should be trying to find other things, and instead she's like hitting her stride right now, mm -hmm. and that's to me really interesting. By 1982. Blondie decided to give it one last go and they put out their album, The Hunter, which interesting side note that contained a song that was supposed to be on a James Bond album, but it got axed. It's a pretty good song. And when you listen to that, you go, oh, yeah, that was supposed to be the James Bond oh. theme. It's really good. Um, and this is also she's now doing more solo stuff. So Blondie's called it a day as of 82. They're done. And now she's officially out there in they're the world. They're done, but they're not really done. Don't yeah, worry. They won't be done. Well, and her and Chris won't be done because they're still very much an item. They're best friends. They're still, you know, a couple. Yeah. And this is when things start to take an interesting turn, though. They're still using drugs pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. She's getting a little bit of work here and there as a solo artist. In 83, she did a song, Rush Rush, for the single for Scarface. Uh, the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. That same year, she has a, a big role in the David Cronenberg film Videodrome, which mm -hmm. she's awesome in that. So things for her are really starting to pick up that exact same year, 83. This is a, a really big year. This, this is something when we talked about wanting to learn more about her mm -hmm. and things we didn't know. This, this is one of those moments. So we're going to slow down real quick in 1983. Okay. She starred leading role in, 
in a biz- bizarre Broadway production. <laughs> Have you heard about this? It was called um, T-Neck Tansy, the Venus Flytrap. It had been uh, shown in, in the UK and, you know, rave reviews that thought, okay, we'll bring it over to Broadway. So she gets cast. The story takes place around wrestling. So the stage is actually a wrestling ring. Okay. It was incredibly physically demanding. So she shared the role with another actress. And the other person in that, if you can imagine, this is 1983 and it involves wrestling and stage performance. The referee was played by Andy Kaufman, who notoriously at this time was wrestling women for entertainment. So this is where Debbie Harry is in 1983. She just was in a movie for David Cronenberg, and now she's wrestling on Broadway with Andy Kaufman while she's hanging out with Andy Warhol. Like, talk about just a wild time in the 80s for her. So weird. Little interesting side note, that Broadway show... Uh Uh-huh closed the same day that it opened it had two performances and it was done okay (laughs) um i guess the big thing to discuss in this whole time period is that chris became incredibly sick he had this disease that was affecting him and she put everything on hold and became a full-time caretaker for him so everything in the spotlight kind of became um secondary unimportant yeah. yeah and a lot of people were kind of curious what was happening to her because they weren't seeing her as much as they had been seeing her previously it's because she stopped everything to take care of chris and it was really taking a toll because he was incredibly sick he was in the hospital a lot do you know what he had yeah i read up on it it was this rare disease um but you know he he got through it okay in 85, she did a track for uh, the, you know, soundtrack for Crush Groove, which I always think of dogma when I hear totally. Crush Groove. <laughs> Time, Time will, will tell. tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in 86, she releases her second solo album that's called Rockbird. That's a little better received, but it also brings me to this week's fun fact. Yes. Okay, the fun fact for this is, you'll like this, one of the singles from her second solo album, Rockbird, was called French Kissin' in the USA, (laughs) and it was written by none other than Chuck Lorre, the TV co-creator and producer who did Dharma and Greg and Two and a Half Men and The Big Bang Theory and Roseanne. He wrote that song. Isn't that bizarre? It was like early in his career and he wanted to get into songwriting. Okay. So he wrote it and gave it to Debbie Harry and she put it on the album. like, great. That's, to me, so bizarre. It is weird how people intersect like that. Also, though, I like how people who did finally find fame and fortune in some way have to fumble around in different areas. It is heartening. So I just was like, wait, is that the right, the same person? Same guy? Yeah, it sure enough, it was. Random. Uh, 80s, she's still moving on. So Chris getting a little better now. Um, and unfortunately, 87 is the year that they decide to call it quits. But it's not really a sad story. I think they just came to the conclusion that they, their their relationship was done in that way, their romantic relationship one thing that I do really find interesting because I read about this with other couples and then I find out, no, that they're kind of playing that up. 
they really did stay like best friends. Yeah, and, I've seen many interviews with yeah, them. And they're always talking like about each other in the highest regard. So they just reached a point where they were like, you know, we need to kind of do our own thing. She's godmother to his kids. Yeah. And they I mean, they're still still yeah. friends. But she starred in a movie called Forever Lulu. She was also in an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. So she's just moving and grooving through the 80s. And I think that that's really interesting. You know, she's balancing music now with acting and theater and stuff like that. Just trying to be artistic in any way. Just creative soul. But she never slowed down. That's what I find interesting. Yeah. Also, I mean, she continues to have stuff happening consistently to this day. But it's. I feel like there's never really a toehold. She just keeps moving forward, but it's not necessarily in a predictable manner, which I really was uh, surprised and delighted to find. Like, she just figures it out one project to the next. Yeah, she's open for opportunities. And I had read an interview with her talking about Blondie and the way they would shift sounds between albums. And she said, well, that's how we've always been. And I think that was part of the reason why they started to dissolve is because she wanted to do a different direction and they weren't wanting to do that or some of the members weren't. So it kind of lines up with how she was living her life was just any opportunity that was coming her way. If it aligned with what she was interested in, although she did say music was her true outlet because she was the lyricist, she could express herself. Mm -hmm. Whereas with acting, she could pick her role, but she was still at the mercy of the director. However, the directors she was picking were very interesting. We talked about her working with Cronenberg, but by 88, she joins forces with another underground, you know, megastar at the time, John Waters, and did Hairspray. Right. So she's just going to all these cool projects. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Jeez. In 89, she decides to change her name back to Deborah, which is really funny to me. It reminds me of like when Queen Latifah wanted to go by her, her real, you know, these artists get to this point where they're, you know, 50 Cent wants to go mm-hmm. by his real name. I, I appreciate that. But those are more extreme changes in names, whereas Debbie to Deborah maybe isn't the most extreme change, but it's okay. That's okay. So she releases her third album, which has the, the weirdest name. It's called Deaf, Dumb and Blonde. <laughs> but I, in full disclosure, I've never been a huge fan of her solo material compared to Blondie. However, interestingly, the more her albums went on, mm-hmm. the better they got. Oh. And this is a really good album. It's got some really great songs on it. So if you're interested in listening to her solo stuff, maybe start two or three albums in. Don't start at the beginning. <laughs> or just grit your teeth and go. The other thing to note, to keep keep in mind during this time to bring it back, is when this album came out, 89, she's now 44 years old Mm -hmm. like think about other musicians at 44 who are just sitting around twiddling their thumbs so far past their prime who has ever just twiddled their thumbs where did that come from that is baloney well you know there's a lot of famous people who have twiddled their thumbs. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I I'm just want to say... I'm twiddling my thumbs right now. I love it, 44. This is inspiring to me, is to think at 44, she is just like going and going and going. Like, I, I need that. I need to hear that in my life. You got some goals. I got some goals, and I don't want to feel like, oh, you should have been slowing down at that age. You know, like, keep going. No, I feel like we should speed up until we burn out at the very end when we're 128. Yeah, and so why I think the reoccurring theme in this podcast and why I don't 
why we keep bringing it up the age is not to be a negative or point out and be ageist. It's to say it's an inspiration and a side of her story that I don't think often gets noted enough is that there weren't a lot of people like her at this time at that age just really succeeding in this way. It was a lot of people that were like finding minor little things here and there. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, really interesting. You know, it makes me think of Judge Judy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that interview, she's like, I didn't get famous till I was like 9000. And she says, if you don't succeed in your 20s, do it in your 30s. If not in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s. And then she talks about Grandma Moses, the painter who became famous as a super old lady. Yeah, that's true. So, like, just don't quit. It's good. Debbie Harry's not doing it. Judge Judy's not doing it. And you're not going to do it. Yeah. And that's really how she closes out the 80s is Mm -hmm. now she has had this whole career as a rock star. And then she's had a successful solo career that keeps getting more and more attention. Her solo albums are getting more attention. Mm -hmm. And she just keeps getting more film and TV roles. And she's still involved, heavily involved in fashion and art and everything, cinema. Yeah, she's working with, like, Betsy Johnson. It's great. Like, she just went through the 80s perfectly. She just navigated that really well. Yep. And that, to me, is what was very rewarding in this deep dive of of her. I didn't know where it was going to go, to be honest. No. I thought it was going to be like us struggling to find something of interest during the 80s. I didn't realize just how prolific she was throughout the entire 80s. Oh, gosh. And in our initial plan, I was like, I'll just quickly wrap it up. What happens after the 80s? (laughs) Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, You know, on the film scene, uh, she kicks off 90 right away with the Tales from the Dark Side movie, which I love her role in that, mm-hmm. you know, and then just keeps going from there. Yeah, she's a real busy bee. And I'll kind of like highlight what interests me because honestly, it's such an extensive list. She is so busy still. She's just not stopped. She just keeps going. So like you said, she's got a supporting role in the Dark Tales from the Dark Side movie. She does international touring, like, everywhere through 91, playing, like, Wembley Stadium with an excess. No big deal. Right. <laughs> like Jeez. you do. Um, she released a best of album that reached number three on the UK charts. So they continue to be big supporters. She does loads of collaborations including ones with Iggy Pop so she's just like collaboration after collaboration which honestly kind of sounded exhausting as I was reading through these I was like yes creatively inspiring and fun but can you imagine trying to get on the same page with some of these artists just one after the other yeah but what's interesting is her relationship with Iggy Pop goes all the way back to the 70s so there was probably a shorthand there where they you know, they're kind of the old guard. And yeah, that, that I to chose, me is cool. I chose to highlight him just because because of that. But she's working with new contemporary artists like Dee Hout and stuff like that. She's doing songs for a buttload of soundtracks. Too many to list. Go look them up yourself if you want. Yeah, you know, speaking of her singing collaborations going, you know, from the 90s on, an interesting thing that happened is she got into jazz and she started really learning different vocal stylings. Mm-hmm. And I like this because her voice got deeper and richer. She's aging. That's what happens. And she used it to her advantage. Like, mm-hmm. instead of trying to maintain that same voice, 
she recognized that and then just kind of played off of it. I thought that was really smart. But before that, she released her fourth solo album, uh, Deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She's continuing Maybe with those. album titles aren't her, her forte. Puns are amazing. It's an art form. She had a part in John Carpenter's segment and the film Body Bags. Yeah, it's a, it's a great one. Then after that, tour for Deprivation. She didn't want to deprive us. <laughs> she did another interesting uh, little f- acting role, too. It's a film that I've been after for a long time, and I constantly am looking for in the thrift stores and cannot find because it's really obscure. And I really, really want it, and I want to see it, but it's called Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme. <laughs> and it's just one day, one day it Someday. will turn up, and I will finally own it, but she is in that as well. So, I mean, so many fun projects. Totally. And getting back to the jazz, she became a sort of a guest with Jazz Passengers. Okay. I mean, we all know who that is. This is all new to me. Yeah. So she was working with Jazz pa- Passengers in 94. She also worked with Talking Heads in their side project, The Heads, uh, in 96. She did a whole bunch of other stuff. I can't. We just don't have time. We've got stuff to do. We've got places to be. She's working. In 95, she co-starred in the film with Liv Tyler Heavy, mm-hmm. which yeah. was big in the 90s. Yeah. Did you ever watch it? No, I knew about it. Okay. Uh, she, in 97, was in a movie called Copland, and then Blondie gets back together and began working on their seventh studio album, No Exit, in 97. Yeah, this is a big deal, because yeah. for a band to take this many years off, I mean, this had It was been, like 15? Yeah, it had been a long mm-hmm. time. I, you know, mixed results. When bands decide to get back together after this many years, usually it's kind of like a courtesy... Sure. Good job. You know, you'll try. Rarely do they actually get back together and kind of knock it out of the park. The single debuted in the UK at number one and did amazingly well international, even breaking into the top 100 in the US. Yeah, let's talk about this. So 99, I think, is when it finally Mm -hmm. kind of came out. Their single was called Maria, spelled like Mariah. The same as my name. Yeah. (laughs) It is such a good song. If you haven't heard it, check it out. I mean, for those of us who lived through this time period, it was all over. Yeah, I remember it very distinctly on MTV. Yeah, but this wasn't kind of a sympathy number one. This was a legit, they earned this number one. It is a great song. It gets in your head. Yeah, it's got all the elements you need. So Blondie made a solid return, and that was not something that that every band can do at that age. Absolutely. And after that, she does more collabs. I do appreciate here that she's working with Blondie, and I think it was a long time coming for her to establish herself as not Blondie, because I think a lot of people just call her Blondie. (laughs) But Blondie is the band. She is Deborah Harry. And that distinction took a long time coming, but I appreciate that she works with Blondie and she does her own things and just sort of is going back and forth. Like, that's just another thing that we're all doing together. Yeah, I haven't come across any, I mean, maybe there was and I just didn't see it, but I haven't come across any instances where they have this massive band drama like most bands i'll say at this point when they're all in their 50s and 60s have really publicly had a lot Mm -hmm. of of drama they didn't seem to it seemed like hey we weren't on the same page let's call it a day they all went on to have successful careers you know clem burke we'll talk about him 
I, one of my favorite drummers. Talk about him right now. He's such an amazing drummer. And that's, for me, Blondie, when I, we didn't even discuss this, like what your first impressions were when you first heard Blondie. I was a little kid in the 80s seeing Blondie. I saw a video and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I mean, obviously as a little boy, I was like, holy cow, this chick's a babe. But also what stood out right away was the drumming. The drumming was just so incredible. And he went on to drum briefly for the Ramones and stuff, but his style is so unique it's Blondie, it's not all about Chris and it's not all about, you know, Deborah. It's that whole band yeah. was the real deal. So it should come as no surprise that when they reformed and put out a new album years and years later, it was as solid as it was because mm-hmm. they were all incredibly gifted musicians. So I don't know, it's kind of neat. And that to me is is a cool part of the story too, is that they were able to come back together and it wasn't like, there had to be some documentary that came out on them getting counseling mm-hmm. and <laughs> working through their issues. They were just, you know, yeah. they just went on with their lives. They were grown-ups. Yeah. And I think also that's probably part of the reason we don't know about the drama. I can't remember the ages of the other bandmates, but for Debbie, it was like, I'm a grown-up. Why am I going to publicly dispute with you guys? We can just go our separate ways. We're adults. <laughs> yeah. She did a book. Not too. Long oh yeah, ago. we'll get to it. Yeah, and so I haven't read that though. I, I would like to. It seems interesting. Yeah, there are some details about her life <laughs> reveal. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's fine. <laughs> she may be embellished a little. Okay, so let's get back to her. So Blondie released No Exit '97. Does great. She does more collabs, more one-offs, soundtracks, all of it. Curse of Blondie comes out in 2003. Uh, 2007, uh, the album Necessary Evil peaks at number five in the U.S. dance charts. Have you heard any of these later Blondie albums? I little, haven't. Little bits and pieces, but not the full albums. I haven't, but after doing this now, I yeah. I want to listen to. I just I need at least to need to know. Yes, I I want to say usually we're a little more up to date on all of the like surrounding artifacts, but we just dove headfirst into this, and I think we're gonna like backpedal a little bit after this episode so the, we can get yeah. More. This is crazy, and be forgiving for us if you're like a diehard Debbie Harry fan, and we're forgetting something that you were like, how could you not discuss that? We literally came up with this, like, hey, we should talk about her. <laughs> and then instead of giving us, our, uh, you know, the normal very long time to do all the research, we obsessively researched in a short amount of time. So we're doing our best and having fun with it. Also, if you're going to be a fact checker, you go somewhere else. <laughs> I don't care about you. <laughs> we did our best. Leave us alone. Okay. Chris is a free. Get off our back. Get away. Okay. <laughs> Um, 2007 Necessary Evil 2007 she does a a tour the True Colors tour uh, with With Cindy Cindy Lauper Mm -hmm. oh yeah Uh, spoiler alert she's been on our list for a while so expect that we'll get to Cindy Lauper don't worry Um, and then Debbie does a solo tour it's like 22 dates in the US I say that like nonchalantly can you imagine I would be so tired and how old is she at this point she's like 90 no, not true. Not true. <laughs> Fact check that. Okay. 2008. So she's keeping it relevant. 2008. She works with Fall Out Boy because we know they uh, love a well, good collab. I'll forgive her for it. I and, mean, I could see the opportunity arising. In 2010, she did a project in, that was like a bunch of duets, including one with Nick Cave. 
Really? Yeah, I haven't heard I have yet. never heard I know. of that. I was like, ooh, I gotta oh, listen boy. to it. This is what I love about weird research. Yes. <laughs> it's like, how did we not know this? Totally. And then uh, 2011, we should do Nick Cave too. Okay, 2011. Oh, the birthday party. Okay. Blondie's ninth album, Panic of Girls, comes out. Okay. Still going. I don't know any of this. This is all fascinating to me. And then in 2014, Debbie release Deborah releases Ghosts of Download. She does a buttload more collaborations. This is 2011. You guys, she was born in 1945. <laughs> She's the bomb. What are you doing with your life? That's what Debbie's doing. Good grief. Oh, boy. Okay, more collabs. She does a residency at Cafe Carlisle, 2017. She does her 11th album, Pollinator. 2019, she's like, I still have more. <laughs> this is a laundry list. Then she does her memoir, Face It. Okay, this was the big one that she's like dishing all the fun facts about yeah, her life. Yeah, I mean, it's just more like of the, the dirt, but also uh, she does more acting after that. Yeah. Okay, so you're kind of up to date now. Yeah. And then it was COVID times. That is a lot to take in. <laughs> I know. I'm, I really thought our post-80s was just going to be like a really quick one, two sorry. sentence. So sorry, guys, if we just listed off her entire IMDb. <laughs> That's what you got to know. A She's a busy bee. <laughs> I have so much more appreciation. I already really had a lot of appreciation for her, but holy cow. I had no idea. What no a idea. work ethic. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. So when you wake up one day and you go, I wonder what that person did that decade. <laughs> be prepared. <laughs> It's intense. Be prepared. They might have been born in 1945 and are still going harder than you've ever gone. Yeah. You're going to make yourself rethink when you say, oh, no, I'm working really hard at what I'm doing. Yeah. Next time you're like, I'm just going to scroll on my phone for 10 minutes. Say, what would Debbie Harry do? (laughs) She would collab. She would release a collab and a soundtrack and do an acting Why do you keep saying collab? Because I know that it tickles your funny bone. Okay. Well. I, it was really fun to collab with you on this episode. This is a good collab. Yeah, a really Let's... good collab. <laughs> okay. Well, that is it. I hope you guys enjoyed this. This was kind of, thanks for wandering down this bizarre road with us. Totally. Till we collab again. Yeah. Yeah. We'll collab as both a podcaster and listeners. Conflab collab? No. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway... Hopefully that was enjoyable. Uh, if you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe. Hey, right, pull it together. We're still doing the show. Uh, you know, you could follow us on Instagram at Laser Graves um, and do all that kind of stuff. So yeah, do the stuff. Yeah, I I hope you guys had fun. That was that was a lot of fun. If you didn't figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's it. That's your final send off. Goodbye. Okay, well, thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Not sure what we're doing, but hopefully we won't come up with it um, with that short amount of time because my brain is ready for the dump now. Yeah. I got it out. I did my part. Goodbye. Bye. Ding dong.